today we'll be reading um, 1 John chapter 4, uh, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this command, commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of God. All right, thank you, Tom. Good morning, Arcadia. Great to see you and great to be back. If you're new, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here uh, on staff with uh, the rest of the gang and uh, been out the last couple of weeks. Uh, I was at my annual week leading the camp in Iowa, uh, Family Camp 3 at Village Creek Bible Camp. And, and as always, it was just a magnificent time be able to reconnect with people. I don't have the video this, this year. Everybody always asks for the video. I don't have the video. But believe me, it was really fun, really good. And we did get to baptize somebody while we were up there, somebody who's been at the camp six of the last seven years and finally came to me and said, I'm, I'm ready to, uh, uh, to confess to everybody here that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Her name is Kylie Jansen, and so that was really exciting uh, as well. So uh, good week away. A um, couple of other things to mention um, first of all, some of you know how much I love my paper clips on this, um, on this music stand. And while I was away, I think Pastor Tyler went out and painted them all black so that they all match. This is beautiful. I like it. It's, 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 it's aesthetically pleasing. A um, couple of other things. <laughs> if, you're, if you're somewhat new to, to Redemption Church Arcadia, um, we, uh, we're having a membership class in... October, it's going to be about a, a, a three or four hour deal at somebody's house serving breakfast and all of that. 
But prior to that, we have something called Start Here. If you're, if you're just kind of getting your feet wet with redemption and just want some basic information and a little bit of history, on Sunday, August 27th, during the 1045 service over there in room four, I'm going to be leading uh, a Start Here class. And so uh, we'd love for you to sign up for that. It'll be a chance for you to hear more about what Redemption Arcadia is about, the history, and for you to ask some questions. Uh, another thing I want to mention is um, on, on the schedule this fall for midweek Bible studies, that would be Wednesday nights, we have two different studies. Uh, starting um, uh, probably a month or five weeks from now is going to be, we're going to be doing Financial Peace University, the Dave Ramsey thing. We have a uh, we have a certified facilitator in our congregation, and so we're going to be doing that. But prior to that, starting this Wednesday, uh, the 16th, for three Wednesdays, we're going to be doing uh, a class on ordinances. Now, some of you might be saying, we're going to learn how to blow things up. No, that's not the, what the word ordinance means in this case. An ordinance is like a sacrament. We're going to be talking about uh, the history and the theology behind uh, the, the Lord's Supper, so communion, uh, baptism and preaching the word. And so we're going to go much deeper in that. We're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about it, but also church history. And so it'll be a, a great mix of all of those things. And so that's exciting as well. Uh, one more thing I would mention, um, this, this, I know this pertains to some of you in here. Some of you know that I've been kind of walking through this weird thing this summer with my voice, and I don't know what's been going on with it. I had a bad case of laryngitis in January, and finally I, I uh, asked a few uh, if you had any suggestions for a throat doctor, I've never been to one of those. But um, anyway, some of you uh, suggested, and it was funny, you all suggested the same place. So I went to that place, finally got in. It took about six weeks to get in. I got in Wednesday and had the examination. I'm very thankful that apparently it's not serious, though I do have some sort of weird condition on one of my vocal cords. I won't get into it, but um, it's possible that I'll have to have uh, a little bit of, it's not very serious surgery, but surgery in, in December if what we try in the short term does not work to correct uh, the problem. And so we're going to be trying some things in the short term. Uh, I'll still be teaching and preaching, but uh, I, 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 he said, you can't yell at hockey games. <clears throat> I was like, man. <laughs> and, then, and then he said, and you know what, don't sing at church. So you, can... <laughs> so you may have seen me over there. I was lip syncing, but I was not singing. He said, singing is actually harder on your vocal cords than just uh, speaking. He said, don't sing at church. And that is um, something that the people who are around me are really happy about. <laughs> They're hoping the condition never improves. Um, but Jackie's hoping for surgery because he said you can't talk for seven days after surgery. So anyway. It's not serious, that's the good news, so I'm really happy about that. So, now, let me get into 1 John, for crying out loud. Uh, in fact, let me pray first before we do that. I appreciated Josh's prayer this morning, but I want to pray also that, uh, Lord God, uh, your grace reigns, your love reigns, your mercy reigns, um, uh, your sovereignty, your authority, everything that you are, everything uh, who you are. Uh, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you for what you're doing uh, for us even now. We welcome your Holy Spirit here right now as we open up your word. And again, I just, uh, as always, I pray that anything I say that's not of you, uh, allow the Holy Spirit to just sort of pluck that from everybody's brains and hearts. 
but everything that is of you, I pray, would land, and land significantly this morning in the hearts of everybody who's here, including mine. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been going through the book of 1 John for 13 weeks. Today is week 11. One of my favorite passages in 1 John is actually the passage that Pastor Tyler handled uh, last week where uh, John says, you need to test the spirits. And so in the spirit of testing the spirits, would you please have your Bibles or your phones open to 1 John chapter 4 today so that you can follow along and test the spirit that is up here uh, today. It's very important. And John's not the only one who talks about the importance of this. Paul does too. He says it differently, but essentially he's saying the same thing. In Ephesians, he says, we should no longer be children in our faith, tossed to and fro by the waves. And the waves there, he's metaphorically speaking about, uh, tossed to and fro by the, the waves of, of culture, the waves of what the world thinks is right, the waves of false doctrine, the waves of worldly philosophies. Anything that can carry us away through this every wind of doctrine or by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So, so John, uh, Paul says the same thing. He said, you, you need to be really diligent about testing these spirits, testing uh, what is being taught and preached and proclaimed uh, in the church. And by way of remembering, again, uh, we, we need to remember that the Apostle John, who wrote 1 John, also wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote his Gospel so that people might believe in Jesus Christ and in his name have salvation for those who believe. But he writes 1 John so that those who believe would know what a life of faith looks like. He says it this way in chapter 5, which we'll get to in, a ne in the next couple of weeks. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So he's evangelizing in the gospel and he's affirming and encouraging in 1 John. And so today our passage is, is one of the things that makes 1 John actually uh, one of the most famous books. It is the God is love passage. It's a passage that um, people love. Uh, they love those three words. Um, I, I have discovered just through experience that most people really don't know about much about what surrounds those three words, but they do love those three words, God is love. And in fact, those three words are pretty famous uh, outside of the church as well. Um, people who have never read the Bible or don't know Jesus, they seem to be able to know that, that the Bible at some point says that God is love, and that's really about all that we need to know. And so we're going to be looking at that today and all that that means because we're going to be looking fully at the context. But I'm going to start by talking about something called false consensus effect and how that might relate to uh, the, uh, God is love. So anyone know what false consensus effect is? So I'm sort of a social science nerd, so I love this stuff. So here you go. Here's what uh, false consensus effect is. And this has been verified by decades and decades of research. Every one of us overestimates the degree to which others agree with our beliefs, opinions, values, preferences, attitudes, likes, dislikes, and worldview. 
And like I said, this has been affirmed by research time and time and time again over decades. It's never been falsified. And no, you're not the exception. You're not special. This is not Barney preaching here, okay? For you are special. Anyway, everyone does this. I do this. We all do this. In all areas of our life, we overestimate the degree to which other people agree with us and how we see the world and what we think. And then... When someone doesn't agree with us on something, especially something really important to us, in the world that we currently live in today, this has developed now over the last 30 years, in the world that we live in today, what happens is we see it actually as a moral flaw in that person. It's not just that we're disagreeing and we can have a conversation about it. It's that now it's, it's we put up a wall and we say there's something morally deficient in that person. And, and, and it extends past even it really important things into really trivial things as well. Uh, so if they don't line up with the way we think, we, we, think, we think to ourselves, well, how, how could they not see this? There must be something wrong with them. And they're thinking the same thing about us. How could they not understand this? Clearly, they lack the intelligence and moral clarity to be able to come over to my side and, and see this. Has anyone uh, noticed how this has permeated, say, politics in the last 30 years? Anybody notice that? And of course, false consensus effect is rampant in the pursuit of identities, as well as it permeates religion. You ever had a conversation with somebody that says they're a believer in Christ and you're a believer in Christ, and the two of you end up separating over some minute little hair-splitting doctrine that maybe or maybe isn't that important, and that happens, and then you walk away going, they must not know Jesus because they don't hold this the way I do. It's permeated nutrition and health, vaccinations, breastfeeding. I've heard it in all of these areas. And of course, false consensus effect has strongly infiltrated pop culture and entertainment. Um, here's a basic example of false consensus effect. Um, any of you watch Fox News, CNN, or MSNBC? Any supposed news channel? Any of you? OK, I will pray for you, first of all, uh, if anybody's watching that. But second of all, um, as you watch that, by the way, nobody admitted that they did. You do. <laughs> Have you noticed when you're watching these channels how many sentences these journalists start with phrases like, well, everyone knows, or no one could ever agree, or it would be crazy if somebody would disagree, okay? You see, Fox is sure that everyone thinks that they think like they think. MSNBC is sure that everyone thinks like they think. Now, here's the thing that they have never thought of. They both can't be right. But they both could be wrong. Isn't that right? They've never thought about that. They're so rooted. They're so rooted. And by the way, as long as I'm in the neighborhood, let me just say this. Since I brought up 24-hour news channels and and that gets into talk radio and all kinds of other things. Let me ask you this question, and let me just drop this on you, okay? What is it that you're being discipled by? Who is the one discipling you? Are, are you being discipled by Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow more than you are opening the word of God and being discipled by Jesus and, and scripture? How's that for a little Protestant guilt just dropped right in the middle on Sunday morning? <laughs> or, or here you go. 
When you wake up in the morning, your first thought is not, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and what could ever separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Instead, your first thought is, where's my phone? I got to see if I have messages and what's going on. Is your phone the primary discipler in your life? Just thought I'd drop that in there while I was in the neighborhood. Uh, one more example on this false consensus effect, and admittedly this is a bit silly, but it is true nonetheless, and this one's been going on, uh, as far as I know, for more than 10 years. I happen to think that it is a fact, it is, I don't even think, I just know, it's a fact that marshmallows do not belong in breakfast cereal, can I get an amen? <laughs> I, I, I know for a fact that Lucky Charms are straight from the pit of hell. Nothing good, redeeming, or godly about Lucky Charms, and anyone who disagrees with that assessment is, at best, moronic. <laughs> Our director of operations, however, the lovely Stephanie Shoemate, says that Lucky Charms are a gift from God, and anyone who doesn't agree needs to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of breakfast cereal law. All right, so what does all this have to do with our study today? This false consensus thing has has infiltrated even this idea of God is love. I mean, what does it mean that God is love? Uh, we're just really kind of leaving it up to anybody to define. I was talking to one of our elders today, and, and he was, he's just like, I, that word just drives me crazy because everybody's got their own definition of what it is, and nobody seems to be willing to talk about maybe their definition being wrong or seeking a different definition if they need a different definition. What does it mean that God is love? And, and, and I found you got to be really careful to talk about that because many people have come to this conclusion that this is the single overarching dominant theological truth and no other doctrinal theological truth matters in the Bible. And if you don't see it that way, you are morally inferior. There's something wrong with you. You're a bigot. In our world today, God is love means that there's really no justice, no consequence, no condemnation or judgment for sin or for living your life in full opposition to what God would call you to. And, and I've even had people say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. The Bible does say that there are things that are holy, unholy and unrighteous and ungodly, but because God is love and that trumps everything, there's never any worry about consequence or condemnation or discipline. Uh, some people would call this universalism, a very, a very popular doctrine, universalism. Others just simply refer to it as all dogs go to heaven. At any rate, that God is love trumps all other Bible teaching, and that would be the dogma. Don't worry, God won't hold you accountable because God is love, and real love would never condemn or discipline. Love is love. And that's true in the church. That's true outside of the church. There are many people who have elevated love, as my um, professor at GCU, Mike Baird, would say. They've elevated love above the righteousness of Christ in importance in biblical doctrine. And that's where you start getting in trouble anytime you elevate anything over the righteousness of Christ in doctrine. That's where you get in trouble. Um, but here is... I mean, based on what we see in this passage, the clear but apparently not so obvious problem with this dominant cultural Christianity dogma, here's the thing that I don't get. Well, well then what is the point of Jesus if that's true? So you have to start asking, so why Jesus then? 
Why did he have to come in the flesh? Why did he have to go to the cross? Why is there this need that scripture says for the atonement of sin? Why? If that's true, if the Bible is essentially God is love, there is no need for Jesus whatsoever. The entire Jesus narrative, which seems to be pretty important in the Bible, simply falls apart. In fact, it's more than that. It's, it's unnecessary. It's irrelevant. The reason God is love is because he provided his son in order to pay the price for our sin. You see the word propitiation in this, in this passage. It's the recompense. It's the payment that we could not pay. He provided his son to pay for our sin, taking our condemnation and our judgment upon himself and sacrificing his perfect life so that you and I would have redemption, restoration, and salvation. That is John's point in this passage. God is, here you go, Get the, if you write anything down, write this down. God is love does not mean that God overlooks sin. God is love means that he is willing to pay the price for our sin. I think that's amazing. And I think that's actually way more compelling than this idea that God's love is passively sitting by while people make a mess of their lives. While I make a mess of my life. So then, what is the biblical definition of love? I'd, I'd like to suggest it's five words. And here they are. Number one, it's defined by cost. God's love cost his son. Second of all, it's defined by sacrifice. Not only did the father sacrifice his son, but the son also sacrificed his life, his perfect life. The greatest sermon on love ever preached is Jesus on the cross. Love is commitment. Love hangs in there even when it doesn't feel like it. Uh, Paul says it this way in Philippians 1, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. That your love may abound with wisdom and understanding so that you may approve what is excellent and therefore be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from, through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He says Jesus committed his life to the cross for you. You then are called to commit your life to him and to love in knowledge and discernment, in wisdom and understanding, in action. Fourth, the word covenant. You look, you read through the Bible, and you start at, say, Genesis 15, where God goes to Abraham, and he makes a covenant with Abraham. Before Abraham has done anything, before Abraham has done anything, he goes to Abraham, and he says, your people are going to be like the stars of heaven because I'm going to be your God. He, he makes this covenant with Abraham. Now, Abraham... Uh, was credited with righteousness because he believed God. That's an important part of it. But God was the one that went to him and said, this is my covenant to you. And, and he does this. And then look how God's people, read through the Old Testament, look how God's people over and over and over and over again walk away from God. They just walk. See, God didn't make a contract with his people. He didn't say, as long as you do this, then I will be your God. They continued to walk away from him. He, he disciplined them. He corrected them. He, they had to go into exile even, but he never walked away. His people were always his people, and he even saved his people out of exile. 
He even saved his people out of exile. That's what covenant looks like. Covenant is, is loving when, when, when you just feel like there's no love left to give and there's absolutely no worthiness in that person to love. That's what covenant is. And that's really hard, right? Isn't that hard? That's the way God loves his people, though. That's kind of an amazing thing. It's a, it's a really amazing thing. That's the love that God has for those who have faith in Christ and given their lives to him in repentance and faith. And then finally, love must practice empathy. Must practice empathy. Empathy is actually a discipline because it, it requires empathy. To practice empathy requires awareness, self-assessment, mindfulness, and perseverance. But it's so important. It's essential. Empathy is the practice of doing everything you can to see things from the other person's point of view, to understand things from the other person's point of view, to understand why they might have pain, to understand why they might think the way they do. It is not a call for you to agree with them, but it is a call for you to be able to try to think like them so you can understand them and know where they are and why they are where they are. This is hard work, but it is something that we are called to. This is how Jesus meets us in empathy. It's the ability to feel someone else's pain, which then sets you up, hopefully, through relationship to be able to speak truth into their lives without that truth bigfooting the conversation. That's really hard. You know, Jesus is truth and grace, and so I know the truth guys. Jesus is really, he's 99% truth and 1% grace, and they're truth guys. And they have the tendency to bigfoot conversations with truth. I used to be one of those guys. It took me decades to figure out that nobody wants to hear the truth if, if there isn't any grace, if there isn't any relationship, if there isn't any empathy, if there isn't any understanding, if there isn't any compassion. Do you see that? He's 100% truth and 100% grace. But I also know those 99% grace people and 1% truth, whatever. That's the passivity approach. We have to have empathy. And empathy is hard because it, it means that you have to be willing to engage and ask questions. And, and then when you start to bring things up that are difficult, you know you're going to get pushback. And you know you might be risking the relationship. But what is relationship if you can't talk about real stuff? That's empathy. Just because a person is, is acting foolishly or in a self-destructive way or in militant arrogance does not mean that they don't have legitimate pain in their lives. In fact, it might be an indication of genuine pain that they just don't know what to do with. As Christians, I would hope that we'd be sensitive to that. The Bible tells us throughout that we need to bear one another's burdens and weep with those who weep. So, some of you are like, are you ever going to talk about the text? Here we go. I have been, but here we go. First paragraph. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. And this is the love of God, and this, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, 
Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So you look at this text and you look at the entirety of the paragraph. You see that God is love, but you also see that this love is now manifest in the giving of his son. God is love is not about what we get, but about God's character and what he's giving us. That's what it's about. See, people who want to define love in their false consensus effect way seem to forget the that the statement God is love is said in a context of defining what love really is. And that means that love is not do whatever you want and don't worry about it, but rather genuine love is rooted in cost, sacrifice, commitment, covenant, and empathy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a famous book last century called The Cost of Discipleship. I know some of you in here have read that book. And in that book, he outlined and explained the notion of cheap grace. Cheap grace is the idea that once we come to Christ, then we take the grace of Jesus for granted and use grace as a license as a way to get away with sin and not have to worry about it or deal with it. it, it the, the grace of God doesn't transform us other than making us sin even more because we're covered by the grace of God. It's just license. It's a misunderstanding of grace, which, which the grace of God really should call us to joy and obedience and celebration and gratitude. And by the way, cheap grace kills Christians. I believe that if Bonhoeffer were alive today, he would now be writing about cheap love because that's what our world insists on practicing these days, and it is killing us. It's killing us. So two more things from this paragraph. First of all, John writes that because God loved us so much that he sacrificed Jesus for us, we also ought to love with that kind of sacrificial love. That is a love that is willing to walk with people in their sin, but do so in a way that shines light on their sin so that it is corrected and healed and not encouraged and celebrated. And then second, John says that when we love each other in this way, in this sacrificial, covenantal, committed, costly, and empathetic way, willing to take the heat when we lovingly point out how people are destroying their lives by walking in some darkness, God says that when this happens, we actually make the invisible God visible. That people see us loving in a way that the world does not really understand it surpasses their understanding. And, and they look at that and they actually, that's the manifestation of God in us that they see. People see how radically and covenantally we love each other and they see God at work. It's a testimony of the love and grace in God. So this last paragraph, 13 through 21. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love, of, that, uh, the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out our fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. 
If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Three things here. Uh, if we've come to Christ in repentance and faith and claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our identity is in Christ. When you start to list the characteristics of your identity, it's always Jesus first. Nothing else is first. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, that's the first word out of your mouth. So I'm not an American Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to live in the United States. I am not an Irish Christian. I am a Christian who happens to be Irish. And I know that surprises some of you that Switzer is an Irish name, but it is. Okay. Um, I am not a sinner who is a Christian, but I am a Christian who is saved from my sin. That, that, that identity is rooted in who Jesus is. Second of all, because our identity is in Christ, we are called to love each other, and biblical love will not allow fear to interfere with that love. Love is the greatest commandment. I mean, let me just read from Matthew 22. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, I just want to tell you that you need to remember that in this passage, you need to remember that Jesus' assumption is that because of the nature of sin in us and self-centeredness and selfishness, we already know how to love ourselves. This is not Jesus' call to say, go and figure out how to love yourselves, then you can go and love God and love others. No. Notice the first thing we're supposed to do is to turn that love outwardly. We are to love God. He pushes us to love outwardly. Again, this rubs against the current cultural dogma. I run into this a lot at, um, uh, in some of the college classes that I teach where people are saying, well, i got to learn how to love myself first before I can love anybody else. Well, how long is that going to take? I know some... <laughs> I know some 80-year-olds that haven't figured that one out. And they're pretty miserable. And then there's the fear thing. To love God and to love others in a genuine and faithful and true way, a way that encompasses covenant and commitment and empathy and sacrifice, it's going to cost you. You're going to be criticized. I'm criticized. There's going to be pushback all the time. Uh, there's going to be inconvenience. There will, there will even be suffering. And these things can understandably cause people to be afraid of loving in this way. Loving in a way that hangs in there even when you don't feel like it. But we have to cling to Jesus' promise. It's interesting how many times I've already brought up this verse in this series. And then Tyler brought it up last week too. John 16, 33. Might be important. Jesus says, in this world you're going to have trouble. But take heart, because I have overcome this world. And he's saying, and I am in you. I am in you. As hard as it is, you need to remember that you're going to be an overcomer. And we're going to talk about that next week, as a matter of fact. We're going to dive in even more. But, but loving this way is going to be costly. But Jesus will walk with us through it. And remember, his love for us cost him way more than it's ever going to cost us. Way more. And then third, God did this first. So 
Here you go, get ready for one of my patented rants. This is rant number 76, if you uh, are keeping score. I continue to be amazed by the number of Christians who truly believe that God's job is to respond to us and not the other way around. That's God's job. Have you read the Bible? It seems as though the Bible would teach that it's fairly arrogant to think that God is subjected to your plans, your strategy, your schedule, and your timing. It's the other way around. I know that's inconvenient for us and hard. I've been trying to do it for 37 years. It's not that easy, but it is what's true, and it is what God calls us to. Now, here's what we need to understand. We still need to pray. We still need to pray for what we want, what we think we need. We need to pray uh, against our oppressors. We need, to, we need to pray and beseech him for our plans. We need to pray all of those prayers. But we need to do it like Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And at the end of that prayer, when he was talking about the cross, and he said to his father, hey, would you please take this cup of wrath away from me? Is there, is there another plan? If there is, let's talk about this other plan than the cross. But at the end of that prayer, what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done. That's how we should pray these prayers. Be open to what he has for us. Because guess what? It might even be better than what we could have thought of. He's got this 360 view. And we don't. God loved us first. And this was his idea. And we not only submit to that, we respond to it, but we also submit in that to his definition of things like love and teaching and grace and mercy, all of those things. We submit to his plans and timing and agenda. And by the way, God also saved us first before we even had any notion that we needed to be saved. I, I lived 27 years in thoroughgoing darkness, no idea that I needed to be saved. And then when I was confronted with the cross and the resurrection, it was like, oh, this is already done. Wow, that's kind of cool. There's nothing left for me to do. He did it before I even knew that I needed him to do this for me. And the funny thing about that is, is that God the Father had this figured out five minutes after original sin entered the world. Did you know that? Original sin enters the world through Adam and Eve rebelling against God and then blaming each other and blaming the adversary, pointing at each other. They, they rebel and original sin enters this world and we're all infected and affected by that original sin and within five minutes God has already got his plan. Let me read it for you. He's talking about the various curses because of original sin and he says this to the woman. I'm going to put enmity between you and the... Uh, he says this actually to the... Um, I'm sorry, to Satan. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is, this is the first gospel in the Bible, and it's all the way back in Genesis 3.15. In, in academic circles, they call it the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. The first time when, Jesus, when God says, I've got this all figured out. Satan, I'm going to send my Messiah, and he's going to be born after thousands of years of this woman's lineage, he's going to be born of her. And guess what? He's going to bruise your head. You're going to bruise his heel. Now, what does that mean? That's ancient Hebrew colloquialism or, or a way of talking in ancient Hebrew. Um, bruising the head means to utterly destroy. And bruising the heel means to wound. 
So if you think about it that way, Jesus was wounded. He did die, but he was wounded when he went to the cross. But guess what? He was raised three days later as the victor over Satan's sin and death, smashing the head of Satan's sin and death. God says in Genesis 3, this is what's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. God had this figured out first. He loved us first. He saved us first before we even knew about it. So it's God first, and then we respond. So let's wrap up. I admit I laid out a problem. The problem that people of faith are constantly competing with the world for a proper definition of love. So what helps? So here's what I want to do. I want to do the best kind of interpreting scripture, which means I'm going to interpret scripture with what? No, my personal feelings. No, it's going to, we're going to interpret scripture with scripture. Okay? So here's how the Apostle Paul writes about love in 1 Corinthians. You may have heard this passage before. 1 Corinthians is in here somewhere. It's right before 2. Okay, got it. All right. Starting in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. And it, it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So here's a confession. I mostly struggle with reading this paragraph of scripture because there are a few of those definitions, of, well, all right, several of those definitions of love that I have not quite mastered yet. The patience thing is really hard for me. I, I am right now, this has been my goal like the last month and a half. I am never gonna drive more than three miles an hour above the speed limit. That's like progress for me. I'm literally trying to do that, okay? I'm just not going to drive the speed. <laughs> it's just like God hasn't quite converted me that far yet, okay? The, the envy thing. If you really want to hear some dark stuff, you know, I can tell you about what I'm envious of. The irritable thing. But still, this passage is so helpful because it reminds me every time I read it that I've got work to do, and that work is going to be done by the Holy Spirit in me and me stirring up the Spirit in me to do it. But in light of what John is doing in chapter 4 of 1 John, I just want to take a couple of comments and zero in on verses 6 and 7. Think about the words I used earlier to define what biblical love is. So it's cost, sacrifice, commitment, covenant, and empathy. Think about those words when you hear something like, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. See, that means, I, and this is so hard, it means in love we don't accuse, but rather we seek to restore. And I know that in order to restore, you have to correct. But if we're just walking around pointing fingers and accusing, that's going to be a hard thing. But even as we just seek to restore, you realize we're going to get mocked and criticized while we try to do that. That's why this love thing is important, because it calls us to hang in there. And then... Think about those five words again when you hear love bears all things and endures all things. See, Paul is not saying that we have to give up our convictions. No, don't give up, don't give up on our convictions. But rather, he's saying that as we walk in empathy, truth, and covenant with those who are off track, we hang in there while they push back, even when that pushback is unpleasant. And it can be very unpleasant at times. 
you know, I, I really love dogs. I, some of you know that. We've always had at least two dogs in our house since we've been married. We love, love, love dogs. But also, admittedly, dogs aren't that bright. Can I get an amen? I know some of you are like, not mine. I taught him to roll over. Dog just wants a treat, just like you do, just like I do. I'll roll over for a bag of Cheetos right now, okay? <laughs> but they're not that bright. You know, I, I've run into this a couple times. They, they just run into traffic, even as you're screaming at them not to. You know what's best for them. You're screaming at them not to run into traffic, right? Okay. And then if they get hit and they're still alive, this has happened to me twice. I didn't learn the first time. If they get hit and they're still alive and you run out there to try to help them and you get close to them, what do they do when they're hit and they're sitting? They bite you. So you're trying to correct them before they ruin their life. And then when you go to try to help them in that, they bite you. Okay? Now, I've been doing this ministry thing a long time. You know what? Some people behave the same way. But Paul says we need to bear and endure all things. Good grief. I'll still go into traffic after a dog that's been hit. Any dog. And I'll still go into the traffic of somebody's life that's a mess. Because, because they still need Jesus. We all still need Jesus. John says the same thing. You're going to have to lay down your life for your brother or sister. So, love, if you really want to know about true love, John says you need to know Jesus. And I'll just reiterate as we close. God is love does not mean that God overlooks sin, but God is love means that he was willing to pay the price for our sin. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we uh, good grief, we, we thank you for what you have done for us through your son. And we thank you that John writes these words not to condemn us, but to encourage us. Uh, not to rebuke us, but to show us the way. God, we thank you that uh, through your spirit, by your sovereignty, we have these words. We have this, we have this Bible, this scripture that allows us to know you better, to know your love and your grace and your mercy and your sovereignty even better. God, thank you for that. God, call us. Call us. Keep calling us. Even when we resist the call, please keep calling us. Show us your favor. Show us your blessings. Show us your discipline and keep calling us. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have our time of reflection and response. We're going uh, to do a bunch of things. We're going to sing a couple of songs together. Well, you will. I'll lip sync. Um, we're going to take communion together. If you've come prepared to give, you can do that as well. Um, more importantly, if you've, if you've come today and you have burdens and need prayer, there will be people standing in the wings waiting to pray with you if you need prayer. Um, and they're not just there for prayer. You can just go up and ask them questions too and have a conversation with them. You can do that as well. But we're going to do all of that as we take communion. And, and, and this, this communion thing, this Lord's Supper, we need to remember it is a sacrament. It is an ordinance. It is called by Jesus for us to do whenever we meet together. 
that as he said, when he broke the bread, he said, this is my body and it's given for you. And, and when he picks up the cup of the wine, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. And he says, do all of this in remembrance of me. He's calling us in that moment to confession. Yes, we need a savior. But in gratitude and in joy and in celebration that we have a savior. That's a beautiful thing. So as you come, remember that you are in Christ, that you, you are part of the kingdom of God and that you are part of the brotherhood and sisterhood that loves one another as Christ loved us. Let's do that now.